Thank you for tuning in to Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast. If you have not, be sure to check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash finish the fight, where we have some amazing merch and plenty of other things for you guys. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast where we do most of the research, but maybe not all of it, but some of it, so you don't have to. I'm your host, Jesse Reiners. And I'm your host, Alex Kendall. And today we are going to be covering Assassin's Creed. Nothing is true and everything is permitted. Yeah, this is the first mainline game from Ubisoft, Ubisoft, however you would like to pronounce it, that a lot of people recognize from their title. Mm -hmm. You obviously have a lot from Tom Clancy and... You know, getting into obviously just dance, uh, and, My... and Donald Duck games as well. Well, exactly. You've got that all coming from them, but this is kind of really where they started their cash cow and mm-hmm. have been milking it ever since. You know, as of recording this episode, we have Valhalla out now um, as the latest mainline game. So they've been going for a while with this franchise. Yeah, and it's a series that's had its ups and downs through and through. It's not consistent. You know, at one point. I think it was like whenever we got to Syndicate and Rogue, people were kind of turning away from it. But mm-hmm. Origins kind of brought them back. Then Odyssey, once again, kind of pushed them away. So, so it's it's an ebb and flow. And, it, and it's allowed for more markets to open up within the mobile gaming market, especially mm-hmm. over in Asia. Because you have it in India, you have it in China, you have it in France. You have all these other ones that became kind of these mobile only or mobile aspect games, mm-hmm. but opened it up to the Assassin's Creed way there. So we're talking about where it all started. Mm -hmm. You know, as we dive in, this wasn't going to be an Assassin's Creed game. No, I mean, if you guys remember Prince of Persia, as I, of course, do, uh, it was The Sands of Time, which was the first one that uh, Ubisoft had worked on, and they wanted a sequel coming to the next-gen console. However, the department working on it was like, "Mm, I don't know if that'll work, and started their... Kind of Prince of Persia, kind of different project, kind of under everyone's noses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, we'll touch about that. How they're a little sneaky mm-hmm. about how Assassin's Creed actually came to be. So yeah, let's let's start it out. Let's let's get the setting for you. Let's dim those lights to just be torches, because because you can't use electrics <laughs> back then. Because the setting is 1191 A.D. The Third Crusade is tearing the Holy Land apart. You, Altair ibn La Ahad, intend to stop the hostilities. By suppressing both sides of the conflict, you are an assassin, stalking your prey with a hidden blade. A warrior shrouded in secrecy and feared for your ruthlessness. 
Your actions can throw your immediate environment into chaos, and your existence will shape events during the pivotal moment in history. Master the skills, tactics, and weapons of history's deadliest and most secretive clan of warriors, including the deadly hidden blade. Stalk your prey through richly detailed, historically accurate, open-ended environments. Scale buildings. Mount horses. Blend in with crowds. Do whatever it takes to achieve your objectives. Experience heavy action blended with fluid and precise animations. Use a wide range of medieval weapons and face your enemy in realistic sword fight duels. A plus on that. Thank you very much. I stole that from Ubisoft. <laughs> Assassin's Creed is an action-adventure game that takes place in a real place and time in history, but it gives its own artistic spin on the events during that time that unfolded. Ubisoft had no motivation to create a game that was politically or religiously driven. That's why they added the disclaimer, quote, inspired by historical events and characters. This work of fiction was designed, developed, and produced by a multicultural team of various religions and faith. The assassins themselves have their own belief that is far removed from religion or any kind of political bindings of the time. They're simply against the unjust killing of the innocent. But yeah, the game is pretty straightforward. You know, you have nine targets that you need to kill total. Mm -hmm. You have your three cities that you go to. You find the target. You go off of clues, essentially. You find your target. You take them out. Now, there are also side objectives. You have to kill X amount of Templars, save X amount of citizens in each city, and collect, I believe it's a couple hundred flags as well. And that's really all that there is about the side content for the most part. And pretty much your gameplay will revolve around really pulled from a lot of the, the French artists they saw at the time, and you're doing a lot of parkouring. So you're, mm -hmm. you're exploring the rooftops, you're jumping, you know, from roof to roof, scaling walls, you know, using hay bales as kind of this soft landing material. And, and one of the major aspects that the game added in that they kind of took the, the ode or the id from it from Grand Theft Auto was the exploration of cities that unlock. So a lot mm -hmm. of this is happening when you scale a tower and once you reach the top, you get this eagle vision. And and mm -hmm. you'll see throughout a lot of the all the Assassin's Creed games that everything that everyone's name pretty much relates to eagle or bird. Yes. You know, within a native tongue or things like that, because you're you're one with them. And so basically as you do that, it'll unlock the area. You'll see where these side quests and missions are, and mm -hmm. then you you'll do a safe, nice, sweet swan dive. Yeah, like four stories up into a three foot pile of hay. Yeah. So so a lot of that revolves around those objectives and as well as i had talked about in kind of a little uh, ubisoft intro you know you have the options of horses sword fights full mm -hmm. stealth using your blade and you'll get upgrades that go throughout that upgrade your weaponry your arsenal your abilities and really start to change how you can combat how you can counter and starts to drive the narrative as well yeah and also you can be stealthy about a lot of things because there is that crowd blending ability mm -hmm. if you see a group of monks walking you just get right in the middle of them and just start praying with them you can sit on a bench next to some people and even though you just stabbed a guy 30 seconds ago you get on the bench and the guy you just stabbed is like i don't know where he is and just kind of walks off and you get to modern day in some points of the game that's really where you start the game as desmond who is a present day ancestor of Altair, mm -hmm. and it gives you a little bit there, but it starts to build that story on how they're able to get these assassins across different 
generations, different eras, and to pull this info out. So that that is really what ties the story together, but your main gameplay is as Altair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the game was released November 13, 2007. It was developed and published by Ubisoft. Let's talk about the studio, though, about Ubisoft, and we'll, we'll start to dive into Ubisoft Montreal as well. So Ubisoft was founded by five brothers, Christian, Claude, Gerard, Mikel, and Yves Guillermo. The company originally started as a mail-order business for computers in France in 1984. The brothers had experience in business, seeing as they had worked at their family's farming support company for years. As the company grew, the brothers took the opportunity to test the waters in the video game industry. With experience and distribution already under their collective belts, the brothers started Ubisoft, or Ubiquitous Software. The studio's first project, Zombie, would release in 1986 and would sell over 5,000 copies. After releasing multiple games in their first studio, the company would raise $80 million in capital funds and open offices in Annecy, Shanghai, Montreal, and Milan. Ubisoft Montreal opened in 1997 with 50 employees, with half of them transferred from the Ubisoft headquarters in France, and then the rest were new hires fresh in the industry. And when it, when it came to this, uh, Ubisoft Montreal CEO Yanis Malay said, quote, The founding myth of this studio is that we took a bunch of young people, we gave them PCs, and said, make games. They were absolutely not game developers at the time. They didn't know how to make a game whatsoever at all. Essentially, this was to prove to the world that they could make games no matter who they brought in. The studio would start to work on existing intellectual properties to decrease the risk of any titles potentially flopping. They would work on games from DC Comics, Playmobil Toys, Tonic Trouble, and Donald Duck. Most of these would see success, and the studio would keep moving forward, tackling the Tom Clancy and Prince of Persia IPs. Speaking of Ubisoft Montreal, their studio is located in an old textile factory, so the building really wasn't optimized for all the wiring and hardware that a modern tech company really needed. At one point, the studio received new PlayStation dev kits that required a stringent amount of power. One day, the fuse boxes, obviously located right outside of the bathroom, caught fire due to the amount of people using the new dev kits. This led to the policy of sending out company-wide messages when someone was about to use one of them. <laughs> Can you just imagine, like, you're just, uh, you're in the you're in the bathroom and everything starts smelling, you hear everyone start freaking out and yelling, and you're like, I can't get up. Yeah, but at least I have a warm seat. <laughs> this is where I die. <laughs> but but let's move on to the early stages of development, you know, where this, where this all started. And let's start out with a quote from creative director Patrice Desolais. Quote, this is not a historical game. It's a sci-fi universe in a historical setting. And that's important. Assassin's Creed, I said it before, it's a sci-fi story. So Desolé, who was the lead designer on Donald Duck Going Quackers, Top notch. <laughs> was looking to move into developing more serious video games. Ubisoft Montreal had just finished production on their most recent Tom Clancy Rainbow Six game and were looking to do the same with another franchise. This led the studio to look to Jordan Mechner's Prince of Persia franchise to accomplish this task. Desolet thought that a reboot of the series had serious potential. The studio would quickly create a demo for the game showing basic parkour stunts and navigation. Ubisoft Montreal would fly in Mechner to get his blessing for the project. After seeing the demo, he was sold, and he would even write a new story for the game. 
With this, Desolée was made creative director of the project. The studio would go on to release Prince of Persia, The Sands of Time in 2003, which would be an overall success. Ubisoft would immediately start to work on sequels for the game, and Desolée was appointed to work on a Prince of Persia game for the next-gen consoles, which would end up being the PlayStation 3 and the Xbox 360, that were supposed to redefine the action-adventure genre. Yeah, the Prince of Persia team, who made it clear that they wanted to still work together, started throwing around the idea of an open-world Prince of Persia game. But they couldn't get far since they didn't have an engine to build off of yet because they didn't really know what the next-gen consoles had in store. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Desolate loved the world of Prince of Persia, but wanted this new game to feature a new character. He would start to research Middle Eastern history for inspiration for his next game. You know, he kind of... And it, as we go through this, you figure out, like, he really enjoys documentaries and history and learning. Yes. And it's really what brought him to want to work on the first Prince of Persia game mm-hmm. to start anyway. But went ahead and dug in and found an old book of secret societies that he had read in college called The Alamut by the Slovenian writer Vladimir Bartol. From there, he discovered the Hashishin, a 12th century group of real-life assassins who would often publicly execute their enemies. Nothing is true. Everything is permitted was the real motto of the Hashishins, which are once again going back are translated kind of Hashish eaters and were this entire group that lived in this same area that we're going to talk about within Assassin's Creed and have this entire aspect of that kind of brotherhood based on. Mm-hmm. And you'll learn a bit more about them through the games as well, which is, is pretty awesome. Learning about this group, he was inspired to create a game that incorporated the platforming of Prince of Persia and the stealth of the Tom Clancy games they had been working on. After some convincing with a demo of this new game, which wasn't much of a demo, it was just kind of more of... It was a pre-made video, but mm-hmm. they told the higher-ups, like, oh, look, check out this this demo we have that we're playing. It wasn't a demo. It was just a pre-rendered video. Yeah, that they, that they worked with. I mean, you ended up having uh, Ubisoft went ahead and said, okay, let's, let's greenlight it. Let's do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the demo the team showed to the Ubisoft corporate team was that of an assassin carrying around a baby prince that the assassins had saved and traversing through the world. Partnered with producer Jade Raymond, who was a new uh, Ubisoft hire, the pair would create a new IP for the gaming world, leaving the higher-ups to expect another Prince of Persia game. Mm -hmm. They would quickly start to dive headfirst into researching the 12th century Middle East, bringing Masayef, Damascus, and Jerusalem into their new world. They also wanted the story to be grounded with real-life individuals from that time period. Yeah, and that's something that the Assassin's Creed... A franchise has done really well is that, bringing in real life characters that has continued with it and and obviously with that sci-fi aspect making up the interactions between you and them at times but still incorporating the timeline of they died in this year mm-hmm. does that fit they will die in this game if not you know then we will kind of work them into either being a side character or mm-hmm. a mainline story arc and they've done it really well and this is kind of the first budding idea they have of it yeah The team would create the design pillars for the game, revolving around an open world, crowds, assassins, free roaming, and realistic cities. Once the studio actually started learning about the next consoles coming out, they realized that a lot of their ideas could come to life, such as sword fights that were actually swords striking one another with force. Because before in games, you didn't really have that too much. With these new innovations, the studio was driven to make the game something special. The team used this new technology to implement elements into this game that had never made it into Sands of Time. 
One such aspect was the crowds were going to be much more larger, believable, and would allow the player to blend in, and these crowds were often referred to as the second character of the game. Social stealth was added simply because it was hot at the time. To take on the task of creating an open world, the Ubisoft team used Grand Theft Auto as their main reference. They could also look to Dead Rising for the amount of AI that they would have in the game. Because as everyone knows, Dead Rising is the game of all games. (laughs) The birther of births. It is actually the first game. We just didn't know it until recently. It's been remastered 30 times, so that's really (laughs) what happened with it. Uh, But yeah, so they used it because if you've ever played any of the Dead Rising games, they've generated what feels like thousands and thousands of zombies on screen. It's obviously not that, but it's still a number of AIs that interact independently, Mm -hmm. that can work in a crowd, that all have their own physics and malleableness, I guess you would say. Because, you know, you've played games where either the crowd is just a PNG or it's like it's a mob. So all of it's one unit, so you can't do anything about it. Mm -hmm. So they definitely look towards that to make the aspect of having that many people on screen work. Mm, Yeah. The team would also look at art references from some of their favorite films, such as Black Hawk Down, Man on Fire, The Butterfly Effect, and Kingdom of Heaven. All great movies. Debatable. (laughs) But Ubisoft higher-ups did see one too many similarities with, you know, the OG kind of Prince of Persia. So they decided that this new game needed a modern twist. They're saying, you know, if you're going to do... Second Prince of Persia, but not Second Prince of Persia. (laughs) You have to change it up a little bit. you got to have an idea in there. And so that's where the idea of Desmond's story comes about. And this twist led to the eventual creation of his storyline and the inclusion of modern-day aspects with Abstergo. When it came to the story, Desolé came up with the idea about a machine that could read DNA and extract memories from a documentary he had watched. This spawned the Animus, the machine that could tap into the past lives and memories through analyzing your DNA. Mm -hmm. Next thing the studio had to do was figure out the story. Designer Philippe Morin suggested that everyone was fighting over the Apple of Eden, this kind of religious aspect of the Middle East uh, that is known through different biblical lore, Mm -hmm. you know, as a source of great knowledge or all knowledge type thing. Yes. And so it was like, that's... That's where we should start. The Forbidden Fruit. Yes. And so really with no other ideas that kind of bounced as well as that one did, that's where they started. I love it. It's just like, anyone have anything better? No. Cool. Sounds good. That's what we're doing. (laughs) Uh, The studio did struggle, though, with the design of an open world game. I mean, it's, it's a tough aspect. Like, obviously, you still have, you know, the greats of, of Grand Theft Auto that's about it. <laughs> that, at that time, we're really doing open worlds well and mm-hmm. made it feel like you could explore everything. Yes. So there's how do we do that? Yeah, because there was, as you said, not a lot of references. No. And and so they, they wanted to, because basically what they wanted was kind of a game on rails, but not. So, yeah. so their struggle was how could you not tell the player where to navigate but kind of suggest it. Yeah, guide them towards it. Mm-hmm. And they would struggle on how best to do that. How do you make it so that we advance the player along, mm-hmm. but the player also feels like they have free will, they're exploring, and they're having fun. Yeah, you, you just make the game pretty barren and nothing else to do. Yeah. <laughs> Throughout every stage of development, the open world concept was honestly almost scrapped. I mean, it's one of those things of like, okay, we've got the quest line down. We know what they want. We know where we really want them to go and what mm-hmm. we want them to do. Why should they have open world? 
Yes. If, if we don't have enough to fill it, really, mm-hmm. is, is what it boils down to. Yeah. To kind of somewhat combat this, the team consulted with an historian when they were creating this world to make sure they were using the proper references, proper you know materials for buildings, proper looks of aspects of it, to make sure, once again, that they were for the most part, historically accurate. Yes. And with this, it did give them access to a lot of blueprints and mapping that I think without the credentials, they wouldn't have got otherwise. No, which is awesome that they could do that, that this wasn't like they just were kind of Googling some of these images. They were actually studying the architecture. Yeah, and, and the other aspect they needed them for, as I mentioned earlier, was for each key player or key character that dies in the game, they had to make sure that that real life person died that year. Mm-hmm. That way, they're not fully fabricating it. Because, like, like I said, once again, wanted to be on that historical accuracy, mm-hmm. but a sci-fi twist to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like you know, Altair obviously didn't murder this guy, mm-hmm. but this guy was murdered this year. <laughs> this guy was murdered this year. He died in his sleep, but murdered <laughs> by oldness. <laughs> they also worked with two other historians, one who was an expert specifically in the Third Crusade and knew the exact year they were trying to replicate, who would keep their script as close to realism as possible. And once all of these historians had read over this final script and gone through it, I mean, you know, they gave that four to five dentist approval. <laughs> you know, saying that, you know, this this is as close as you can get for a made up story mm-hmm. that still looks like what it was at the time without embellishing it, without fully westernizing it, you know, try, yeah. trying to fully make it how it looks here. So so overall, they said, yes, you did a great job with it. Yeah, Four out of five dentist approval stars. Exactly. That one, though. <laughs> mm. The team didn't really think that there needed to be a prince in the game. After all, this game had already been deterring away from the sands of time. They needed to convince Ubisoft that the game needed to be a new IP entirely. Because this was mid, mid-2000s, mid mm-hmm. and we're going to talk about this in different episodes, was not really, a, for about 10 years, it was like, don't do new IPs. New IPs, don't do those. No, it was kind of like your 90s era of comic books. Mm-hmm. Everyone was like, let's just reinvent or try something different. And it's mm-hmm. one of the worst eras of comic books ever. And that's yes. kind of where gaming was this time. Yeah, so new IPs were, were like, everyone was like, don't do that. What are, you, what are you, stupid? You get to figure, they're on the change of technological cusp. Mm-hmm. From the 90s to the 2000s, you did have that leap of a technological upgrade. Mm-hmm. But now you're kind of in that rut where we want to do more, but we really can't yet. Yeah. And it seems like at that time there was 7,000 space shooters because apparently space was what you did. Absolutely. You know, or a Call of Duty clone. Yes. And everything outside of that, it's like you couldn't do more. So so why should you try and push for new IP when really you should be making the coolest Donald Duck game out there? <laughs> <laughs> they didn't exactly tell Ubisoft, though, that the game wasn't a Prince of Persia game. Mm-hmm. When they first presented the game to them, they never actually mentioned the prince, but instead focused on the assassins in that demo. The game was being designed as Prince of Persia assassins, but over the next two years, the team working on the game would slowly remove Prince of Persia from all the game's documents, slowly giving rise to this new unknown IP. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, as I said... How's that new Prince of Persia game? It's good as the guy's like putting white out over the dock. Oh, that Assassin's game? Yeah, it's it's going really well. What Prince of Persia Assassins, yeah? Yeah, the Assassin's one. Okay. <laughs> Pretty much how it went. <laughs> 
Come GDC 2006, Ubisoft didn't have an official name for the game, so someone from marketing suggested the title Assassin's Creed. The name stuck, even though it took some convincing from producers. Ubisoft as a whole was still not too thrilled about the idea of a new IP, especially since it would be their first title for the next-gen consoles. That's it. I mean, this is your rollout. You know, you already have Rainbow Six under your belts. You have your Tom Clancy's. You have all these other games that are already doing well. Mm-hmm. Why, you know, why stray away? Well, as I said, you know, it's one thing that, you know, new IPs were already tricky, but they even dive into, you know, doing research on this. New IPs for new consoles are even trickier. Well, it is. I mean, look back at the Xbox One launch, Sunset Overdrive. I mean, that's that's a game that was like there to die. <laughs> you know, I think if that game had come out later, it probably would have carried a little bit more weight. But when you have that, you know, or Knack Baby, it's a great game. But Knack Launch, oh, what was that terrible game that released for the 360 where you could transform into monsters? Evolve. No, that was one. I don't know. I forget what it is. But you you have that one. You you have all these like starter games that came out that really the only IP that's held up that is a launch somewhat title is kind of Halo Combat Evolved. Yeah. As a launch-ish title or like Mario 64. Yeah. Or any of those ones that are kind of staples. But everything else kind of went to the wayside. Well, look at the most recent, the Xbox Series X and the PS5. There wasn't a lot of new IPs for the most part. Buck snacks, baby. (laughs) (laughs) Now, a lot of developers on Assassin's Creed credit developer Richard Dumas for his amazing development skills. Though he was a shoddy coder at a technical level, according to lead programmer Matthew Maserol. Yeah, I mean, he's basically a spaghetti coder, if any of you guys are out there. Like, he just kind of threw stuff together Mm -hmm. with, with proverbial duct tape. And it really caused everyone to not touch his code because if you change one line, it just shattered the program. Yeah, because like they they legitimately said that they were afraid to yes. go in and touch it because they called it Frankenstein code. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's basically all just kind of mashed together. It's kind of how I started coding, which is throwing stuff together and like it works. I go, that's not how you do. It. I go, it works. That's how I do animations. Yeah, <laughs> like that's it, not how that's supposed to go. It works right now. <laughs> Don't change anything because this is how it works. Don't touch it. He was also the go-to developer for making certain aspects of the game click, like horses. There was a junior-level designer that had been working on the horses for a year, and you couldn't seem to get things right. Dumas came in to help. He would play Shadow of the Colossus for a while, then go back to coding. To him, Team Eco created the gold standard for horses in games. Yeah, I mean, because you have to figure, your transportation within Shadow of the Colossus is not only allowing you to play the game and get close to your Colossus, mm-hmm. um, but it's to see the grandiose scape of it, you know, the landscape yes. and everything that's in there. So it's super smart to kind of see that and be like, okay. And I, I love that, like, from a coding standpoint, he's like, okay, it goes like this. How can I kind of make it do that? And, like, yeah. the back and forth of it's really, really cool. Mm-hmm. You know, movement within the horses was also just as critical as the movement in the game itself. And Ubisoft, oh, man, you're having me pronounce it that way now. I'm going to the old school American <laughs> way of Ubisoft. I, I did that because I was like, man, Ubisoft, he's going to tell me that's wrong. So no, Ubisoft is right. But I'm, <laughs> I'm sticking with my Ubisoft here. But they actually ended up building an in-house mocap studio. They didn't want to use stunt doubles. They actually really wanted to just kind of use who was in-house. Yeah. Because they, they for some reason, I disagree with it, but I can agree at some point, is they did want it to feel realish. You know, mm-hmm. you trained as an assassin back then, but there was no, like, professional school where you you, you hit pads and you took leaps. You just kind of did it. 
Yeah, you just got your ass beat as an assassin. That's how you learn. Yeah, and you don't want it to be kind of scrappy, um, still strong, but but nothing technical in a way. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of really why they went that way. And at one point, animation director Alex Druin, uh, Altair's animator, would put his training in martial arts to use as he practiced stunts in the garage so he'd get those animations just right. Mm-hmm. And Druin and another animator would practice their moves in the garage together and then actually record the mocap with weapons as well. Yeah, they said like people would come down for lunch and they were just fighting with foam swords out in the garage, which mm-hmm. is actually kind of cool. Like you could say you could do that at work. Yes, yeah, that's so that's what Jesse's trying to do with all this animation. He's learning. He's like, man, I need to get to that mocap area of just <laughs> throwing swords at people. This is my dream. Now on to a little bit of controversy with you, the gamers, truly is where we are, <laughs> I will say. Obviously, the landscape has changed significantly since then, I, I will say. Uh, there's still leaps and bounds that need to be changed. But really, one thing that came up was about Jade Raymond, mm-hmm. uh, you know, being a, a, a powerful female who comes in and takes over this production role. You still have this bigotry and sexism, not only in the gaming industry of of hiring, but in journalists, yes, it was bad. In you know, people playing the games, and she kind of came this became this celebrity once she was became public that mm-hmm. she was kind of the head honcho or one of the heads work in production. Yes, and for some reason at that time, we still see it, but wouldn't recognize that professional merit because not only was she a woman, she was a very attractive woman as well. And yeah, they, and they took that. A running joke, kind of like a running dumb blonde joke of like, you know, articles titled like Jade Raymond has big old breasts and something about Assassin's Creed. It, and it's just this sexist forum about like, haha, isn't that a funny review I'm doing about Assassin's Creed? It's coming out. Isn't that funny? It's, it's a girl. And this was like, what, 14, 15 years ago, which it's kind of like this was the norm at the time, which is like so crazy to think about. Yeah, and it's just that creepy simp attitude of it. It's really what it is. But it's just so much immaturity of games journalism, which was still a budding industry at that time. Yeah. You have to figure games journalism didn't really, really take off until you had the Xbox and PlayStation 2 out. Mm-hmm. And now you're getting, you know, kind of the underbelly of it. And and to, to kind of wrap it up, one thing that did happen that we saw on somethingawful.com was this whole cartoon caricature of her of just being like that that ditzy you know attractive blonde woman who's like oh, I'm I'm a good at this I'm I, I create games yeah it just made her just some legitimately just a stupid woman essentially yeah, that's what they made her out to be and it's ridiculous and and what happened was Ubisoft actually threatened to sue something awful if that image wasn't taken down but webmaster of something awful Richard Kayenka pushed back against it and basically was like oh it's free speech man it's no big deal but it's like dude what are you doing like eventually it was taken down but this was the unfortunate circumstance at the time was you're having a lot of women jump into gaming into tech mm-hmm. kind of turn of the century stuff and you're getting these aspects of it so really we wanted to touch on that and and we're touching on that in future episodes as well of just controversies that have occurred with people working mm-hmm. there just so you get the full story of you know what pushback they had and not only producing the game you know on pr side what did they have to deal with yeah legitimate because there was an article as well that was titled about her called jade smells good at the london games fest what listen people are creepy 
Yeah. And it just, as we said, you know, this is something, unfortunately, that we are going to be talking about. And I say, unfortunately, just because it's, uh, it, it happens. It and happens. It, it, and, and luckily, we're starting to move more and more away from that. But especially this is where we are seeing the rise of video game journalism and, and women having to deal with something like that. Yeah, because the last bit of this soapbox, this was the wild, wild west of it. Mm-hmm. You had places like IGN sprouting up, uh, GameSpot. Uh, Kotaku that were starting up with that, but a lot of this was just kind of independent articles written and mm-hmm. put out to forum sites, blogs that weren't your kind of mainstay. It was it, mm-hmm. it was all budding industry. Yeah, but let's move on mm-hmm. now to the later stages of development. The first three years of development alone were just concepts and pre-production. The team was originally only seven people, but it quickly grew into dozens of developers working on the game in order to create the grand world that they had envisioned. It was hard to recruit for Ubisoft since they were not well known and did not have many games in their portfolio at the time. Personally, you know, according to Alex, the Donald Duck game should have been the only thing they saw. Yeah, I mean, so you should have just ran with it. I mean, you could have done all the ducks, Daffy. Other ducks, <laughs> those the, the Ducktales ducks, little guys. Isn't there like a superhero one that wears a hat? Darkwing Duck. Yes. Yeah. See. Oh, look at that. More ducks to come from. <laughs> uh, Mighty Ducks. Look, we got games for days. <laughs> we're, we're set here. Most new hires were on board with Ubisoft once they learned about Assassin's Creed. Every new hire was interviewed by the original seven members of the Prince of Persia project. Regardless of what anyone else thought, if those seven didn't like the person they were interviewing, they were not hired. Mm-hmm. So it, it, we still did have that like camaraderie and like everyone's got to kind of be on the same board because developing a game, you're going to be working with these people on this project for four or five years. Well, and some of the stuff that I know that you and I have researched in, in our earlier podcast and in a lot of other content we've done is the scrappier the studio and the more glue that holds them together, whether mm-hmm. that's the cheese of pizza or the the 30-year-old socks just sitting there, mm-hmm. as long as there's something that bonds them together, they produce great content. Oh, absolutely. Essentially, like a, a, a frat house yeah. puts out great games. During later stages of development, the game would be delayed. With this, the studio would look to see what they could cut in order to ship the game on time. Mazarol, who was the lead programmer, as we had mentioned, would suggest that horses simply had to be cut. And he had data to back this up. Desolé would tell him point blank that it was not negotiable, stating, quote, Listen, look around you. There's cars everywhere. Back then, the car was the horse. The game does not sell if it is not believable, unless there's horses everywhere. Sorry. To jump in, I'm like losing my mind because I'm, I'm just slap happy at this point. But I love when he says, back then the car was the horse. I'm thinking, <laughs> oh, man, they were Transformers back then. <laughs> and now they're cars. <laughs> uh, but continue with your horses. <laughs> Arguments aside, the horses were there to stay. Mazarol knew that he could not disagree. And it's really what you need to have an extra element that almost felt next gen at that time. It's really odd to say, but like having a mount or having mm-hmm. something that just adds speed or, or or can increase your map size, as as we've seen, if you've ever seen any of those gifs on on Reddit or other forums where someone will put like a map from a game and then a bigger map from a different game mm-hmm. and a bigger map from that, it's really cool to see those sizes. And it really helps. I mean, that's why GTA can create the maps they do. Yeah, because there's vehicles. I don't think this game there would have been fast travel or it would have been a quarter of the size without the horse. I fully agree. And that leads into our later Assassin's Creed games of horse combat and just so much more aspects on top of it that really, really make this game stand out 
apart from the others that are coming out at the same time. Mm -hmm. So when it came to the main character of the game, they needed someone to stand out and decided he was, you know, a quote, bird of prey style character. So this is where we get Altair. And Altair actually means eagle star, bird. There's various translations we have Mm -hmm. in English, bird, eagle star. But specifically in Arabic, that's kind of where we're looking. And this was to kind of push towards the brightest star of this eagle constellation. There's various sources you could pull from of really where they came from with it. Mm -hmm. But that's kind of the direct translation of it. You can go down a lot of rabbit holes when it comes to this. Like even the- A lot of eagle's nests, some might say. (laughs) A lot of eagle's nests. Uh, But then you also have uh, Ibn La'ahad, which actually means son of no one. So it's that tie-in of it that that really brings it together- when you hear his backstory. So I'm going to go a little yeah. tangent on his backstory. You know, his his mother had died during childbirth and his father, who was an assassin himself, was actually killed during a different crusade. So he was kind of the son of no one, kind of that bastard child, like like a Jon Snow mm-hmm. type thing. Um, so that's really where he ends up getting that last name from it. So Altair wouldn't be the perfect assassin, though. They wanted him to be, you know, rough around the edges when it came to him scaling rooftops and even some of the combat at times. And so they ended up looking over to WWE wrestlers for some inspiration. Who do you think they went with? I want to say Rey Mysterio. I'm going to probably go with Big Show. <laughs> as, as, as the full inspiration for the very quick and speedy the guy that can run on run up walls <laughs> yeah 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 yeah. as opposed to the real wrestler who can run six feet and get winded <laughs> please please let us know who you think they based what re, what WWE wrestlers they based them off of or if you have a modded version with Big Show in there I will gladly play the entire game <laughs> <laughs> however you know jokes aside with that they did want Altair to be a more realistic character, unlike his princely predecessor. Because in The Prince of Persia, it's a lot of one-liners, quick wit, kind of this perfect Aladdin-esque prince. And so they wanted him to be this more rugged, interesting, kind of like morbid backstory that does what he's told in the Assassin's Creed, but will will take it upon himself on some of these things. It feels bad for some of the stuff he does mm-hmm. and, and brings that humanity to it yeah but uh, apart from you know wanting him to be realistic in a certain aspect he was still you know incredibly athletic and had infinite sprint which i am very thankful for in the game and stamina as well yeah and stamina and and built it up but once again that's more of a game option choice because you don't Mm want to like climb in a wall and be like i'm tired and then fall off the wall and 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 breath of the wild (sighs) jesse's joke of the night that wasn't a joke. That was a that was me being upset. Oh, oh! I thought you were making fun of my wild. I, I like that. We'll keep that in there for the Breath of the Wild fans out there because Jesse did not finish that game. I finished that game. Mm, that's doubtable. That's, that's I finished that game. Debatable. But yes, yeah, so they, they made him kind of the best of both worlds when it came to the the style of like clambering and and using their own in house people, mm-hmm. but also keeping the gameplay mechanics useful when you have to traverse an entire open world. Yeah. Ubisoft liked the character design, you know, for the most part of like that ruggedness, you know, the big show-esque-ness of it. <laughs> Loved it. But they did have a problem with Altair's outfit. They felt it was just too white and just stood out way too much for this quote-unquote master assassin. The studio worked on a new design for a month, but ended up sticking to their guns and said that the one they had was the best one they could come up with. And, of course, Altair's face is also hidden 
you know, to give the player that aspect of feeling like they're him. Mm-hmm. Projecting themselves into Altair. Yes, and, and it makes sense because it's it's tough at times for a third-person game to allow you to do that. Mm-hmm. But really covering his face up and controlling it and the entire backstory of Desmond, they're going through his DNA to kind of relive it. Mm-hmm. It, it, it changes those aspects up and definitely, in my opinion, makes it a bit more believable. Yeah, but touching on Altair, he does have over a thousand moves and animations in the game. Mm-hmm. And there are a total of 10,000 character animations. Uh, Sands of Time only had 500. Yeah, and a little fun fact with, with Prince of Persia, the OG, OG Prince of Persia for like the, the supercomputers, whatever they were called back then, <laughs> um, you know, could only use so many bits and that's where you actually get shadow man from it if, if you haven't checked it out ars technica has war stories which is a fantastic series and they actually do uh talk about the original prince of persia and how it was built and so you know playing on those things where you can only use so many characters so many aspects they actually shared the code in this game as well so so your npcs share that same altair code because you'll see it when the guards chase you, and if they try and climb stuff, they clamber the same way, they feel the same yeah. way. So it's really smart using those assets again and again instead of trying to load up this game with so much like bloatware in those terms. Yeah, because there are 300 individual unique characters, but they're all based, as you said, off of Altair. That's why there's no children in yes. the game. Because also killing children would just be morbid, and you know people would try to do that. I would agree. (laughs) Around the end of development, the studio was rather worried whether or not the game was going to be a hit. After all, just because they liked it, that doesn't mean everyone else would. Thankfully, after a European tour demoing the game, most of the journalists who got their hands on the game for a couple of hours absolutely loved it. This would help the studio feel a whole lot better about the game that they had put years into. Yeah, because they also were demoing at E3 at the time and just Mm -hmm. got huge, huge positive feedback from everyone there. I mean, mean, not only is it a nice ego stroke, but it proves to you know, Papa Ubisoft, that our team was able to do it. We're putting out a new IP for a new, like, top-of-the-line next-gen console, and it's looking like this might be a smash hit. Yeah, this, this game that we lied to you about, it actually worked out. Mm-hmm. And the first submission of the game contained no extra activities at first. You only had those nine guys you had to go find, mm-hmm. and that was going to be the mainline game. But, you know, you, all right, you've got the game pressed. You're printing the little little leaflets. You got your books stapled very nicely. You're showing all your character animations off in there. Some good art. Five days before end of production, they go, hey, maybe there needs to be more stuff in this. And not just the team said this. This was actually coming from supposedly CEOs, as, as, as we said, one of the brothers who started it, mm-hmm. uh, Eve Guillermo's son, had played the game. You know, he took it home. He's like, hey, son, Papa's got a new game coming. This is verbatim. This is verbatim. Yes, I, I was there. And also, he's no longer French. He's, he's no longer French-Canadian. He sounds like this. Uh, he was like, uh, Papa's got a new game. Play Papa's game. But So he did. He sat down and played it. And he felt that it was just extremely boring. You know, it was, it was linear. You just kind of did your thing. And he kind of asked, like, what else is there to do? Yeah. And so this led, you know, I, our Eve going in and saying, uh, hey, guys, how's it going? Everything going well? Good. You get this book stapled. I like that. Very nice and neat. Anyway, let's redo the game. We need to add more stuff in it. Yeah. And so within those five days, 
you had this team go in on full crunch mode to end up putting in those side missions of finding the flags, fighting those Templars that you had to, you know, you know, you had to kill X numbers mm-hmm. or, you know, saving the citizens. That was all kind of added in those last five days. Yeah, that's why they're all literally the exact the same, same. cutscene, mm-hmm. the exact same people you're saving. Yeah. Um, and the flags was more so you created an asset and you created an asset point and just went put it on t- tall stuff. Plop, plop. Yeah, and I mean, really, you want to talk about crunch mode? Is that the those five developers that locked themselves in the room? Only they had access. Only they had a key card to that. Mm-hmm. No one else could get in and bother them. Now, the PC version of the game did leak two months prior to launch, and thus Ubisoft was going to make someone pay. Ubisoft sued Optical Experts Manufacturing, the company responsible for manufacturing the PC version of the game, for ten million dollars. One of their employees took a copy home and posted it online. Ubisoft claimed that OEM ignored security protocols that led to the leak. This cost Ubisoft a potential sale of 700,000 copies. The initial release only sold 40,000 copies. Now, the leak also contained a bug that was in the process of being fixed, so Ubisoft claimed it hurt the reputation of the game itself on PC. We had to figure, because anyone who got their hands on it probably went to a forum and was like, look at this buggy, gross game. Yeah. Like, look, my horse is upside down. Look, like I'm stuck here. <laughs> that would be kind of cool. It, it, it'd be really sweet. But, you know, all these different things that any developer's nightmare is. You know, mm-hmm. even, even looking at modern-day Assassin's Creed, we still get a lot of that, whether it's through leaks or through first releases for some of these. But there's just so much that needs to be patched day one or day two. But like you said... If it gets leaked, there's nothing you can do to patch that. Yeah, no, it's it's out there. It's it's gone. But by the end of 2008, the game was the third most pirated game with over 1 million copies of the game illegally downloaded. I can finish up. Now, there was no public demo available for the game due to the studio not being able to figure out what part of the world they wanted to showcase. Mm-hmm. And I think that really does make sense. It could have been any because it's a wash, rinse, repeat game. But... The game would go gold on October 29th, 2007. And by the end of development, after four years and created by 190 people, the 10 core Sands of Time team members whittled down to three by the end of the Assassin's Creed project. The band broke up, folks. Yeah, unfortunately, no reunion tour coming here. Not yet. Not you yet. You never know. You never know. We do know, but you never know. <laughs> you never know. Uh, so, yeah, let's let's move on to marketing and, and what Ubi Ubi did that's what i'm calling it from the rest of this ubi episode ubi now. ubi ubi well I, I, we're both saying ubi and ubi we're like switching no, i'm back only and saying forth. ubisoft because ubisoft is, is the right way to do it <laughs> but anyway uh so ubi ubi started to put some money into marketing and, and trying to figure out what's a neat aspect to hook people in to start to give an idea of possibly what's going on and throw some mystery into it mm-hmm. and so when the game was first presented to the world for months, fans and journalists alike would notice glitches in the marketing and trailers. The glitches added in the first trailer were put there because marketing felt the game needed a modern touch, or else no one would really care about it. Just kind of this, you know, kind of samey looking, you know, kind of Middle Eastern story of this guy going around in a robe, action adventure game, like yeah. How do you how do you change it from Prince of Persia and other stuff that you've done? Well, mm-hmm. what what can you do? So this is really where they started to do it. And this was simply to hint at that sci-fi, you know, portion of the game that, you know, Ubi Ubi kept under lock and key. You know, th- th- this was 
supposed to be this big reveal. I think they were going to release the game without ever telling people yes. that there was that modern day setting. Well, yeah, because they wanted people to yearn for more. They wanted to mm-hmm. try and, and, you know, did it work? Did it not work? I think they were trying to go for a lot of that marketing that other games had done, um, you know, like with Halo they had this thing called I Love Bees, which was this website that got hacked by this AI, mm-hmm. this, this evil AI. And, and and it was this beekeeping website. It was really cool to explore it and try and figure out the lore of what's going on. And so I think they wanted something like that to like, oh, what's this glitching? You know, what's, yeah. what's, what's happening with yeah, this? Yeah, because as you would watch it, like these, these white glitches would just come on the screen, you know, and it's almost like you're watching an old v- VHS tape at times. Mm-hmm. And everyone was like, what's that? What the hell is that? Yes. And so they wanted people to yearn for more. And mm-hmm. that's why they really wanted this to not come out un- until it happened. Mm-hmm. And at one point, the studio was just telling people the glitches were, you know, a stylistic choice. Nothing else. Not, don't worry about it. We just wanted it to look like we screwed up. It's the mid-2000s. Limp Biscuits here. We're going to try and make a Limp Biscuit, <laughs> Limp Biscuit video. That's really what we're going for. Yeah, well, Jade Raymond did have this to say about that. She said, quote, At first, the team just wanted to talk about it because it's part of our game. We spent a lot of time thinking about it, so it's very hard to talk about a part of our game without, you know, talking about another part of it. Because then things just don't make sense. We got a lot of questions like, quote, why is the guard glowing? And we just couldn't talk about it. Essentially, they just sent the shrug emoji. Yes. The 2007 equivalent of that. And they did, you know, I I think pretty well with it. I think think it definitely caught a lot of people's eyes. I think this was... You know, a game that my friends and I at the time were like, oh, it's actually pretty cool looking. Mm-hmm. I think I'm down for that. Unfortunately, this allure of mystery would be taken away at the end of 2006. In an interview with IGN, actress Kristen Bell would reveal the plot actually deals with a laboratory and accessing memories, ultimately confirming many theories spawning from fans after watching the E3 06 demo. With that being said, the game's marketing would push through with TV commercials and an abundance of print material. Now, their marketing budget had paled in comparison to Microsoft's marketing budget for Halo 3 at the time. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, as I said, I, I remember re- like doing the research, I read the IGN uh, interview and you can tell the interviewer is like, oh, what was that? You just gave us that plot? Yes. So obviously no one from marketing actually or PR was probably there at the time or else they would have said don't print that. And they, so- they pulled a Tom Holland. <laughs> a pre-Tom Holland there. Uh, yeah, and to give you guys an idea on the trailer, it's 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 the start of it. I would say it's it's the lowest budgety version looking of the Assassin's Creed trailers. Yes. Um, thus to come. This is the first one, obviously. But it shows, you know, this public hanging with what we see as guards around there with this man in robes. Mm-hmm. Start to push his way through the crowd, very similar to what they do in the game, and make his way up. And at this point, I think a lot of fans, too, were kind of questioning this because they didn't see it in the game. You know, Altair, this man that we don't know yet, pulls a crossbow and fires the first guy, Mm -hmm. stabs the second guy with, like, the back of the crossbow and pulls him down. And then does that signature, you know, hidden blade attack. Coolest thing ever. It's Seeing that was like, ooh, that's pretty awesome. And the fact that this was a – this was a good trailer and Assassin's Creed trailers are just – some of the coolest things in video games, top, period. Top notch. Valhalla's, ooh, that thing was amazing. Dude, the Revelations trailer they're all is great. so good. They're, yeah, they're all great. All of them. All yeah, good. So, yeah, so, so he, he makes his escape attempt across the rooftop. You see guards following. And like we said, the glitches, the highlighting of enemies. And if for it to finally end, you know, he's caught. He's not getting away. He's in front of a closed door. 
which happens to be this monastery door, mm-hmm. and these monks all come out, and that's where you blend. So it really gave you an idea of what you were getting into in this game that I think told it pretty truthfully for for a trailer, I would say. I just, I, I do love the idea. It's like, oh, all these monks come out in this robe, and here's a guy that stands ahead of, taller than him, covered in blood, just blends in with weapons all over him. They're like, where'd he go? But no, it, it is a, a great trailer. But we did, you know, for marketing, we did have other spin-off titles that came from Assassin's Creed mm-hmm. because they were around Altair's story as well. So we had Altair's Chronicles that would come out on the Nintendo DS and iOS, and we had Assassin's Creed Bloodline, which came out on the PSP. Yes, and this is really where we start that franchising opportunity of it. Mm-hmm. And like I said, this one was just specifically dealing with Altair's storyline. Yeah. Um, as, as we get further down with Ezio Dottori and, and the other assassins, we'll see a little bit more into them. But as far as as, as Altair's story, this is what we are looking at. Mm-hmm. So let's let's jump over to you know a quick summary of the campaign and really what what we're seeing and what's going on. And obviously we start with Desmond Miles, a bartender. You know, wakes up in a laboratory located in the Abstergo building after having what appears to be an odd dream. Uh, he only sits there to find out that these scientists are actually accessing his ancestors memories through his dna because it's all this kind of like splice shared dna idea and something i love is this concept where he asks desmond he goes how does a how does a a, i don't know the exact question say how does a bird know how to fly and he says well just uh animal instinct and he goes no it's a memory of the dna Mm -hmm. and the first time i heard that i was like i i sat there and i kind of had like a oh god moment like that's actually kind of realistic i think it's it's a it's a really ingenious way to start to tell that story whether it can be believable or not it sides on the side of believability like absolutely maybe that's what it is Mm -hmm. because because it's not because what is instinct other than something programmed inside of you Mm -hmm. yeah but essentially what he's told is by these two scientists it's like hey we have to access your memories and if you don't let us we'll just put you in a coma Mm-hmm. So, so he's like, uh, okay. But yeah, so so it takes place, as we had said at the very beginning of the episode, 1191 AD, and the game starts out, you know, you're playing Altair. Yes, and and, and like we said, Altair is an assassin living during the Third Crusade, is tasked by Assassin Brotherhood mentor Al Malum, I think is what you know I'm going with for this episode for you guys, to retrieve a powerful artifact known as a piece of Eden, specifically the Apple of Eden. Yep. Um, however, his arrogance during this mission costs the life of a fellow assassin and actually permanently disables another. And this is where Malum demotes him and is like, if you want to get back in my good graces and do this brotherhood stuff with us, I got nine guys I need you to take care of. Yeah. And at first you think he kills him because he like stabs him and then he comes to and he's like, oh, and he's like, just kidding. I just wanted to stab you because I was pissed off. Mm-hmm. Anyway, as you said, kill these nine dudes for me. But yeah, this is where we get into the gameplay where it is you go to Damascus, Akka, or Jerusalem. You know, as we said before, there are those side objectives, but you go, you find out who the target is, you go off of clues to find him, assassinate him, and then you move on and do the same thing again yes, and again. And, and as you're as you're making your way through, Altair has these really cool moments. Cool, I guess is not the best word to say, but after you assassinate his, his target, cool. It goes into this animus esque like I don't matrixy mode. Yeah, I don't know how to describe it. Ghosty mode. Yeah, where it's like the 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 your surroundings turn into like that an- animus loading screen. Yes, and and you're able to uh, talk to the person you just killed and, and yeah. get a little bit more backstory, and they start to tell you about 
oh, well, if you're really looking for someone to talk to, you know, deal with this person. And, and mm-hmm. they, they start to reveal that all of these quote unquote kind of random nine people Templars that uh, you know, the head of the Brotherhood is sending you to kill are actually all connected. They all know each other. Mm-hmm. And it's like, because there's one guy who's a slave trader. There's one guy who who is is experimenting on mentally ill people. And it's like, you, you start to connect all these dots. Because you think you're just doing it as Jesse had said earlier, just for the greater good of it, like like these, pe- you need to stop this because this is bad. Mm-hmm. But you start to slowly learn things of like, you're bad, but you're all connected in some way, and you still have some goodness in an, in some weird way of it. Or, or yeah. we're wrong about you. Yeah, it's again, it's this gray area of morality and everything like that. But and also throughout the game, you occasionally jump back as Desmond Miles and Mm -hmm. literally you're just confined to this laboratory in a room, Mm -hmm. essentially. But you do find out that you are subject 17 and subject 16 before you actually went crazy from all of this. And there's something called the bleeding effect where you get Altair's eagle vision. Yes, you you start to almost awaken the assassin in yourself. Mm-hmm. Be, from them tapping into your DNA, it's starting to bring that back. And because in the game, as we had said, eagle vision not only unlocks at those towers, it allows you to see objectives, enemies, other uh, things throughout the game, kind of the sonar mm-hmm. through walls. Yeah. And, you know, as Desmond, you start to be able to kind of use it and f- see eagle vision secrets yeah back at the lab yeah like subject 16 wrote messages and blood mm-hmm. on his walls that he discovers through eagle vision so that's like this kind of side thing that you do and eventually you find out that one of the scientists that is working on you she's actually an assassin too because you find out that abstergo is actually the templars in the assassins are still around, and there is a modern fight. Yes, because going back to uh, the men you've you've just been casually killing, you didn't really know about the Templars or know that they were connected to the Templars. But yeah. this is where you start to figure out that they are the Knights of the Templar, mm-hmm. and and that they are all connected in that way. And you're trying to figure out why you know your assassin guild leaders is sending you out to do these things. Yeah. So and. Upon killing, uh, you know, your ninth man, your final man, who is the Temple Grandmaster Robert de Sable, he returns to the assassin stronghold of uh, Masayev, only to discover that Al Mualim betrays the Brotherhood and actually had you all do his dirty work to mm-hmm. steal the Apple of Eden for himself. Yes. And this is where we get to the end game, the final boss, and where Assassin's Creed starts to dabble in magic i guess is is the best way to it's it's, yes. it's supposed to be kind of godly religious magic because he's able to kind of hover and teleport and i still don't have a full grasp of assassin's creed lore yeah. whatsoever it's pretty cool how it ties in it's it's definitely an interesting read and i like that they built upon it mm-hmm. obviously the first game you just kind of had this to go on but yes yeah, so, so you end up during this fight he falls to your blade you know, and you have this this kind of heart to heart at the end of it. That matrix heart to heart you always have with them. Yeah, and as you finish him off and get that apple of Eden, this glowing map occurs, showing you that there's there's more pieces out there. The pieces of Eden. Yes, it's not just this one. Because I think at the time, I believe it was supposed to be the one item. 
I think this all you knew yeah. about was this Apple of Eden was it. Well, Abstergo or the Templars were just trying to find where the Apple of Eden was. That's why they were accessing Desmond's memories because they know Altair hid it. Yes, because they, they knew about him. And so that's really where, and to summarize one more time real quick for you, you know, obviously you're Desmond. You're also Altair. They're accessing your Desmond memories to get to Altair, who was tricked by his master mm-hmm. to wipe out the competition to get this apple that is is basically the apple of Eden. Yes. All knowledge throughout it. Uh, and it sets it up basically for game two plus. Yeah, because around the end of the game in the modern time, assassins are trying to break in to get Desmond, but it's to no avail. And it does kind of end like on a cliffhanger. The Templars slash Abstergo now know the location of all these other pieces of Eden. Mm -hmm. Desmond's still stuck at that lab, but he is with an assassin who was, by the way, is Kristen Bell's character because she had to ruin the mystery (laughs) of the story. Way to go. So that is an overview of the campaign itself, like short and sweet and really as I said, it's very much so assassinate these nine targets and you go fight, you know, the master assassin and... That's that. Yeah, and, and I think it was a very nice start to a base game that, that uh, lends itself to an even richer lore. I, yeah. th- I think Assassin's Creed 2 is really where you get into a lot more of the meatiness of the game. That was the breakout game for it, it was sure. 100% the breakout game with it, but it couldn't have been done without the groundwork laid here. Absolutely. And and, and for them to take the leap on this game, the the unknowing leap until they knew about it leap. the leap of faith that's actually what they call it in the game when you jump off of the uh eagles point. And, it, and it's in its name ubisoft uh, uh true fact it's not they went in there and says we want that name for our true leap of faith we took in all of you <laughs> uh no so so without this leap of faith taken to it and without them trusting in their team to create this we wouldn't have this long-running series whether you love or hate it it's an established series in my gaming that everyone knows. Yeah, and to touch on the, just the gameplay itself really quick is that I will say the gameplay is pretty finicky. Mm-hmm. If you play a more modern Assassin's Creed title, parkouring and fighting is pretty smooth. Yes. It's pretty seamless. This one was made so that to jump on a wall, you had to you had to hit... I can't think of the controls in my head, but it's like you had to hold down R2 and hit A, and if you hit A at the wrong time, you just... jump off the wall and die which is very frustrating and you yell a lot but either way so this first game it was a little more niche in terms of combat and in terms of traversal which again started to get approved upon in assassin's creed 2 and so on and rant so yeah so so we're wrapping that up let's move on to cut material and we'll start with Altair's ring finger because he had to cut it off to use that blade first of all i didn't even make a joke and you said it was bad you're coming at me about this listen we're including it now. This is my top tier joke about cut material as fingers cut off. <laughs> it's top tier. Which that is something to mention that we, we didn't is that his ring finger on his right hand is missing because if you look, that's where the blade comes out. Yes. And so that was kind of the sacrifice you made. And that's how you completed your assassin training mm-hmm. was they took that finger kind of as this promise to be an assassin, but also so your blade works. Yeah. And, <laughs> and unfortunately, it's how you can be told in a crowd. When it's like, <laughs> Everyone give me five. It's like, you're giving me four. We're looking you? for an assassin. Hold up your right hand. And he's just like, uh, and just runs away. Yeah. But on, on to more serious, serious matters of cut material. <laughs> One of the big ones was multiplayer. Yeah. Like, I don't even know how they would have done it. I think you just both go for a target. 
I know that there were plans. I don't know a lot of details. I, I know it was added into two because that's when you actually had to track down each other and more of it. And I will say I actually really enjoy Assassin's Creed multiplayer. It's actually pretty fun. And it's a more detailed among us. Yes, it's a more detailed <laughs> among us of like tracking down who's who and 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 is a fun game. It's definitely something I would not play regularly. But like a game night might be fun, mm-hmm. you know, to kind of jump in there and play a couple rounds. Don't get any ideas, patrons. Please do it. But yeah, so the multiplayer was unfortunately cut. Also, getting hit by a blade once essentially meant death. They they wanted this realism at the start of like, if yes. you got hit, you bled out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which it, they realized very early on. They're like, oh, this sucks. Why, why are we playing it like this? Yeah, this isn't Dark Souls. <laughs> <laughs> no, so so... so Obviously glad that they did that and made, you know, just him more beefy and, and able to take on things because otherwise it's it's it would be such a niche skill game. I, I yes. think it would have it would have died on arrival. Yes, absolutely. It would have had a very small niche hardcore following, and that is it. And and another element that wasn't necessarily teased in the works as far as it just in the trailer is the crossbow. Mm-hmm. We do eventually get the crossbow later in the line of games. Yeah. But in the trailer, you know, it's seen to have it with the exact same design and, and shooting layout that we eventually see later that Ezio gets. But I'm assuming it one was crunch time. And they could not figure out how to do it or it was a stylistic choice that they didn't really think about. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's just one of those things. There are a lot more cut than what we'll even talk about. But mm-hmm. there, you know, we talked about there are essentially three different kind of side quests. There were originally going to be a lot more. I think they initially cut all of them, but then had to add those three because having all the side quests they wanted would have meant another year of development, mm-hmm. which they just didn't have the time for. No, and and they wanted to get close to the launch of the system to kind of get in there as some of the first games. To be within that first time frame of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But also something that was cut is when you were fighting the soldiers, one of them would run and go get more more soldiers and then they would come back. And it was just like kind of like if you didn't kill them all pretty an quickly, wave. it was an infinite wave. And they were just straight up like, again, it's like the one hit kill. They're like, this is way too difficult. Like you can't because how you play, especially fighting five guys, it takes a few minutes. It does because most of the time until you really learn how to counter well, it's tough. And let me tell you. I don't learn how to counter into a game until I'm three-fourths of the way done with it. I I know. You told me about, once again, Breath of the Wild and how you got (laughs) so frustrated because the game was so hard. I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know how to counter those beams with a pot lid. I'm sorry. You're missing out. We also had swimming to be included. You know, much like old GTAs and plenty of other games where water meant death if you looked at it, uh, <laughs> swimming was cut, and it's actually in the lore. Lucy Stillman, who's Kristen Bell's character, once mentioned, you know, in an air with the Animus in like a software update, talking about it caused the ancestors to just drown if they touched water, <laughs> which which kind of led that ability of Altair not being able to swim. Yeah, so this program where you relive a memory, you actually can't really relive it. So don't swim, loser. Well, because when you did, you derezzed. And that's what mm-hmm. it was called when you died. You derezzed. You didn't really die. Yeah. You kind of, quote unquote, came out of the animus because that's like, that's not what's supposed to happen. Yeah. You, yeah. Because it it's like, supposed to follow that timeline. When you killed a civilian, and I, I, I think it's in later games. Even in this one, it's like Altair didn't kill civilians. Mm-hmm. Like if you did that too much, you would. That's it. At least in the later games, they allowed you to kill enough where you were satiated before <laughs> it would like kick you back out. But 
For this one, yeah, it, it would take you out if mm-hmm. you didn't follow the path line of your ancestor. Mm-hmm. And, and then the final original concept that was cut, which I thought was kind of would have been interesting before they had that modern uh, aspect to it. Mm-hmm. It was going to be that the campaign was told through an assassin telling a story, essentially, which would be pretty neat to have, like sitting around a campfire with mm-hmm. the other assassins talking about, like Altair, you know, the great. This is what he did, and this is how you know we we serve under him now, or something like that. Yeah, yeah. But now that we've gone through the cut material, we are going to jump into the music. And again, the music as well is kind. The same thing happened. It was the second one when you had Ezio's family's track is when it was when it would break out. But the first the first soundtrack is pretty good. But let's let's dive into it. The soundtrack was composed by Jesper Kidd, who was picked by Ubisoft after considering a dozen composers for the project. Each composer was asked to create a demo for the game, and from there, Kidd was hired on the job. Even though Kidd was a successful composer by that time, having won a BAFTA for his soundtracks and Hitman contracts, Assassin's Creed would put him on the map. Now, Kidd would struggle with writing music for Assassin's Creed since it was for a new IP, and it was an IP that needed to stand out. So there needed to be these multiple musical elements that needed to be in the game mm-hmm. because, again, we have the modern setting. It's it's in the Middle East. and he With even, four different cities that have four different feels to them. Yes, and he even talked about, like, he was he had to work on music just for the chase scenes mm-hmm. when you're out running guards. He couldn't just create an orchestral score and call it a day. Yeah, and y- you can't. I mean, because it's not a game or a setting that leads to that. To have, like, Beethoven's Fifth playing during this, it doesn't really work. <laughs> you have to have something that fits the time period, fits the era, fits, like, you being an assassin and the music that goes along with it. And, and it, it took a lot for him to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he was asked to put, you know, three moods into the game, which were tragedy of the Crusades, war and mysticism. A kid would be more confident with the soundtrack once he learned more about the innovations of the game. He was given screenshots, scripts, design documents and basically everything the studio could give him to help write the score. Even though the studio had some requests at the tone of the game, Kid was still given creative freedom when it came to creating the score. And again, we've learned this like even like back when we were doing Halo, the less the composer knows, it's not that good. No, you need them to be in the element and see who the character is. And it, it, with every artist, get in the mm-hmm. mindset of what you're creating. You know, I'm, I'm creating for this this guy who's who's obviously kind of following blindly. But yeah. has has kind of this change of heart as he's going through it and, mm-hmm. and has to take down his master to live up to this assassin's code, you know, as, as well as who are these people he's hunting down? What is this city? What gets your heart racing as you like, you're like, I need to clamber up here. The guards are after me. How do I get away? You know, type thing with it. Yeah. Granted, the game takes place in a completely different time and culture. Kid would use musical themes from that time as well as modern nuances of those tracks and add new tracks to separate from the period itself. So each location, as you had mentioned, mm-hmm. in the game has its own musical theme. And it should. I mean, you're you're well past the quote-unquote modern era of gaming at this time. So there needs to be more of that attributed into it. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I mean... Turning turning after like the N sixty four into like the PS one era is really where money was put into those soundtracks. And Absolutely, you, you have to have something. You're getting that graphical fidelity. You're pretty much coming up to you know ten eighty at this point if you're not already there. And this is you know where everyone's like, this is the best it gets. So what else can you improve? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now the soundtrack was released December thirty first two thousand six with eleven tracks totaling forty minutes and thirty four seconds. And there's about three hours of music that is written for the game, and it took roughly about two years to create. 
Now, Assassin's Creed 1 was the most difficult soundtrack that Kid has ever written, and the track Access the Animus, which is the chase music, Mm -hmm. was the most difficult track he had written for the soundtrack. But it's so crazy. To this day, he says that's the most difficult one he ever had to do. Yeah, and and, and I guess it is as well. I mean, you're coming off Hitman, which is is similar. Mm Mm-hmm. But Hitman already has kind of established lore and ideas and sounds. And, he has and, a lot of stuff to go off of. Yeah, a lot of stuff to go off with that. Whereas this is taking that same element, taking it to the 1100s, jumping into like a whole new era of this, of, mm-hmm. of different culture, different sounds, and making it all work, as well as like the modern day tracks for Desmond and, and all these other things that are happening with it. So I think overall he did he did a pretty good job. Well done job. I mean, I'm yeah, for it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, let's jump over to the release versions of the game. You get the standard edition for the 360, the PlayStation 3, and the PC. The limited edition, and this version of the game would come with an Altair figure, PAX Comics, a mini strategy guide, and a short film based on the game. The short film was actually created by fans, and, and Ubisoft and IFC held a contest with a $10,000 grand prize with the film to be featured in the limited edition collection of the game. Greg Reed's The Final Weapon won the contest. You can go online and, and watch this, by the way. Yes. It, it's always just cool to see stuff like that. It, I thought it had something to do with Assassin's Creed. It, it doesn't whatsoever. Mm-hmm. They just wanted a short film inspired by it. Yeah, just just to kind of... It's it's a PR stunt as well. Mm-hmm. Ten grand is not much in a marketing budget, but it's huge for a film student or someone who wants to get their name oh, out absolutely. there. absolutely. Amazing. You also had the PC Director's Cut, and this version came with four new investigation types Archer Assassination, Rooftop Race Challenge, Merchant Stand Destruction Challenge, and Escort Challenge, with a total of nine new investigation missions. It's also compatible with an Xbox 360 controller. And finally, the Platinum Collection Greatest Hits, which wraps up any DLCs, any additions. Mm -hmm. You know, every game pretty much gets one as long as it sells 10 copies, (laughs) at least at that point in time. Oh, yeah, there's so many games. Yeah, so so that's kind of where that wraps up for that. Yeah, so so moving on from that, you know, the, the game's been released. We have all these different editions of it. Let's talk about the general reception of the game. Really, you know, what did this do for gaming? How did people uh, uh, react to it? And what kind of legacy it's it's left? So the studio needed to look beyond just the first Assassin's Creed game. The opportunity to create one new IP in the studio's lifetime is rare. And creating two was damn near impossible. They decided that if the first game was going to be successful, they needed to make a trilogy out of it and keep it open to other mediums such as film. Mm -hmm. And I want to throw in a quote from programmer Mazarol who said, quote, I remember when we shipped the game, I was completely despondent. I was utterly convinced that it was a catastrophic failure, that we didn't deliver enough gameplay, that there were too many bugs. I was sure that this would be seen as a really good try, but ultimately too flawed. I had such tunnel vision about all the problems and how many problems were not solved. End quote. Producer Jade Raymond even you know, thought that all the bugs in the game was going to kill the franchise. I... I didn't think there were that many. I guess there were more than I remember. Well, I figure as a lead programmer and kind of like having someone always pointed out to you, it's like, I hope they don't go in that left corner at Uh, six uh, quadrants and uh, and jump two times. Yeah, jump two times and then spin around where they get launched out of the map. Mm -hmm. After Ubisoft revealed Assassin's Creed to the world in 2006... You know, this is even before the game was released. Five different studios contacted them about creating movie adaptations before they really knew anything about it. That one trailer alone, five different studios are like, let's talk. It's amazing. And and so Assassin's Creed overall was made for more casual players. This included the combat systems. This did not bode well with the hardcore gaming community. 
that felt the combat was a little lackluster and after you got your upgrades, way too easy. Even at their first E3 demo presentation, some fans would criticize that even larger fights, only one or two enemies would go after Altair, but this was simply due to the fact that they didn't have enough space to have more than two people fighting Altair. Like, Mm -hmm. what other game are you having... 10 people pile on you at once it's that isn't like a hack and slash game also you're living this out and you're playing it kind of like a movie yeah what you do in those type of things Mm -hmm. but you know even if ubisoft could have implemented more than those two fighting yeah they just thought it wouldn't be fun it wouldn't have been no i crazy people i love the counter and stabs and Mm -hmm. like working through all that and as the games progress like as you get past one and get to two and and brotherhood and revelations and the rest the rest of them yeah there's just so many cool animations that happen and like assassination takedowns and counters it 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 just wouldn't have done it Mm -hmm. but ubisoft was actually pretty confident that the game would outsell halo 3 so they had the game release around the same time. Ballsy. Mm-hmm. Though they didn't outsell Halo 3, they would outsell Call of Duty 4 in the UK. It even outsold Need for Speed that year, making it the first time in three years the game did not debut at number one. The game sold over 5 million copies in the first few weeks of its release, making it the highest-selling new IP at that time. This game proved that new IPs could still be a huge hit in the video game industry, since most studios were staying away from them. From 2002 through 2005, only 10% of holiday releases were new IPs. Ubisoft actually released six new IPs in 2007 alone. I think that it, that really shows that they were just taking a lot of risks. And, like, they, and they were all Assassin's Creed. <laughs> <laughs> the game would receive an 81 out of 100 on Metacritic. Games Radar Plus would put it on their list of the best 25 open world games of all time. And Game Informer would put it on their list of top 200 games of all time. The game also won dozens of awards from reviewers such as GameSpot, GameSpy, GamesCritic, IGN, and 1UP. The game has gone on to sell over 8 million copies worldwide. So, you know, it's it's awesome to see that it, it made such a lasting impact, mm-hmm. not only on the game industry, but those who worked on it. Because years after the release of the game... Desolée visited Jerusalem, and he knew that the studio did a good job representing the city because he felt like he had already visited it Mm -hmm. before, which I think that's awesome, is that you can go there and just feel that way. But he also has this to say about it. Quote, I get to meet people who got Assassin's Creed tattoos on their body. The people I've met, old men of 30 years old crying in front of me because I spent so much time with those characters in that universe. And I know I want to thank them when they meet me and use your article to say that even though I'm doing something else, I know we've made something special back in the day that touched and changed people's lives. And I'm so happy that we achieved what we wanted. He's also gone on to jokingly apologize for making boring climbing mechanics popular in video (laughs) games. All in all, Assassin's Creed was a game that was rough around the edges and had its fair share of complaints around the mechanics of the game itself. This didn't stop the gaming community from taking the game in and spitting out a fan base that's alive and well since 2007. The game also spawned the series into being a cross-medium franchise that still dominates pop culture to this day, spawning books, comics, and even a standalone movie or two that's canon with the lore. It's hard to find any gamer, whether casual or hardcore, who hasn't at least gotten their hands on one Assassin's Creed title. Ubisoft, or Ubi-Ubi, or Ubi-Ubi, <laughs> Montreal, proved to the world that they could push the medium of open-world game and storytelling to the next level. 
And it all started with the shamed assassin Altair and his journey to redemption and finding the truth after they lied to their bosses a lot and then made this game that was supposed to be Prince of Persia. (laughs) (laughs) Which I love it. I love it. But let's go to the final section of this episode. What impact did this game have on the gaming world? Why did we choose this as a game to cover on this podcast? Yeah, and and as always, I will introduce myself and start it off. Alex? This is me, Alex. Alex, please start us off. Oh, thank you, Jesse. I'll introduce myself as well. It's my turn. Uh, <laughs> yes, so so we chose this, you know, as obviously, one, it's a household title. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you don't know it, go play it or play any of them. It, it'll, it'll suck you in and... Yes, there is repetition. Yes, there are aspects of it that are buggy or, or, or crazy. And, and you'll always get that day one bug of like, look, its eyes are popping out. Or look, this graphical thing is happening. Mm-hmm. But overall, it's such a fun game with a pretty rich story that they're starting to advance now in the future through multiple different eras and peoples. And, but, 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 but bringing us back to the first one, this was a risk to take. Absolutely. You know, I, I remember Prince of Persia, Sands of Time. It was okay. It was a fun platformer mm-hmm. that was kind of goofy, kind of serious in a way. It was that era where all the protagonists had goatees as well. Yeah. I just want to point that out. I, I agree. And it was one of those games that it kind of just melded in. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it felt like a game that was always in the fringe, that wanted to be top dog, but it just couldn't. But now comes Assassin's Creed, that took a whole different art style away from the cartoony-ish aspect and made it mm-hmm. kind of real. And gameplay as well. Gameplay as well. It made it much more real, much more visceral. And I, I just think overall that story in it, you know, even like the joke of the climbing mechanic, they did kind of establish that parkour and gaming. Absolutely. And, and, and brought it to the forefront of it. It, it brought such, it brought it at the time a very smooth combat system in the way of like executing uh, assassin kills with your hidden knife, uh-huh. counters, other things with that. And, you know, to create this in such a short amount of time, yes, it does have its downfalls of repetition. I know maybe one person that has completed 100% of the game and getting all 400 some odd flags and just killing all the, all the Templars, all the fetch quests that are in there. Yes, it did add more to the game. And yes, it kind of advanced what you could do. But overall, it was kind of like homework. It's busy work that you don't want to do. Yeah, yeah, this was one of those times where the the side quests, if you're a completionist, it was still kind of a chore. Yes, and and most of the people you're seeing do it are really only achievement completionists, so mm-hmm. that's why they're doing the 100% on the Xbox, yeah. or if you're trophy hunting, you, you, you do those things. But yeah, I mean, it, it, it established a, a, a dynasty. Absolutely. That lives on today. I mean, like I said, we, we just had uh, last year the release of Valhalla mm-hmm. that's, that's been doing really well and it's you know told the Viking aspect of it and getting into a whole different sense of what's going on and it's established so many more clones or little pieces of gameplay that make its way into other genres into other games and whether it's Altair whether it's Ezio it's it's you see the the assassin symbol mm-hmm. kind of that bell looking symbol mm-hmm. you know what game it is it's, it's absolutely it's, it's made its way into the terms of kind of like recognizing pac-man recognizing master chief recognizing sonic yeah or even the hood the iconic hood the iconic with, hood you see a silhouette you go that's assassin's creed that's assassin's creed and and the blade as well which i i've watched so many youtube tutorials on how to make that blade yes. i want to one day like the one where you actually like I don't know, click a button or something that comes out and then it goes back in. Mm-hmm. I want one. You want to send us some gifts? Send me an Assassin's Creed blade. 
But no, as you had said, the idea that it is it is a dynasty. It's grown to this point to where you see an element of it mm-hmm. and you know what it is. It's it's a franchise that's been going on for 13 years. Cross medium, comics, books, a movie with Michael Fassbender. Mm-hmm. People said it wasn't that good. I haven't seen it. But regardless, video games getting their own movies in Hollywood, which, you know, we, we will talk about more and more, is actually not easy whatsoever. There's years and years of, of red tape and paperwork they have to go through. So it got to that point mm-hmm. in it's it's grown from there. You know, I, I know a guy, Kyle, who is so obsessed with it. He loves the lore. He loves everything about it. It's so cool that he's invested in it. And I've looked into a lot of the lore, too. And it's a pretty cool story and to see how these all connect. Yes. Again, some games are a swing and a miss. But as a whole, I think it's a great franchise. And it's it's so cool that it, it spawned from this game that, yes, it could have been better, but it could have been infinitely worse. You could have died after getting hit once. What? Well, and you have to figure it could have just been Prince of Persia 2 and been written down as, yes, that was a game that came out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it literally, the fact that it was a new IP, I think I set it apart. Because, yeah, you could have had a prince that was a child that you had to guide around and you were an assassin giving it its own allure. And here's the thing. I know coming 2012 with Just Dance being the greatest franchise of Ubisoft's life, thank you Ubi Ubi for it, it would have stand on its own. But Assassin's Creed, I guess, did help the studio make a name for itself, you know, establish. I mean, Assassin's Creed almost alone helped Ubisoft become a main powerhouse. Yes. Start Uplay. Start so many other aspects of the gaming universe that we're still seeing, you know, trending today or have have our hand in something with Mm -hmm. it. And it really spawns back to here. They did have work like we said with Tom Clancy and a couple other titles, but that was kind of working with someone else's credit. Yeah. Now that you're going to make your own and start purchasing your own things, it helps a lot. But yeah, one thing that's really, it's really why we chose this game. Mm -hmm. It's a pinnacle in modern gaming history and culture. And like I said, it's still a household name that's coming out almost yearly. Yes. Yeah. But I'd say, you know, we've gone through our reasons as to why this game was covered so let's give the game our own personal rankings again we know this is a very important game but we are going to give it our own personal ranking because that's just what we got to do and no one yell at me for mine but honestly i will say since the game was super repetitive for me the combat is a little sticky at times i'm going to give it a i'm going to give a six and a half out of ten if i had to give it a rating I would probably give it one wall climb where you accidentally jump in the water and get very frustrated. Add in riding your horse and then kind of crashing into stuff and then getting off and then flying away. That's happened before too. But multiply that by what I disagree with Jesse uh, is fun combat and it takes skill and countering, which we'll talk about later. But divide that by one apple of Eden... That's not a real apple, so minus points for that. Probably out of being, but that really equals out to starting one of the coolest trends of internet clothing, having a cool Altair cloak. And that was it. That was our coverage of Assassin's Creed. Research done by Jesse Reiners and Evan Barr. Artwork done by Jesse Reiners and Jessica Wellickson. And music written and composed by Evan Barr. And I helped... Oh, thank but, you. Uh, t- that's what I'm here for. <laughs> but who's also helped have been our amazing patrons. So, 
as always, we have our Patreon. Some cool stuff going on there. We just retuned it a little while ago, so check it out at patreon.com slash finish the fight if you want to support us. And we want to thank those supporters today, starting with Charles Zitter, Tactics, Skyjack, Angry Canadian, Grant Dillon, Kevin Fong Feliciano, DGamer1298, Alex Harper, Dilfix, Nick Hyman, Tuna0317, Brendan Christian, Richard Scanlon, McChief, Big Papa Semechki, Grant ODST, Loki2014, Nathan Van de Voort, Climbing Spork, and William Kroll. Thank you guys so much for the support. MVPs, we appreciate it. And if you do want to go follow us on Twitter or Instagram, we would appreciate that greatly as long as you click the link in the bio and you have a direct invite to our Discord. It is free for any and all. Come join today. It's a great time. And slap us. Like, like just slap it. Just just, just go for it. Full force. <laughs> a subscribe or a follow on our YouTube or Twitch. Uh, you can find me streaming uh, this game, our Assassin's Creed, coming up this week. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll be playing through a bit of that to kind of see what's going on, see what's not going on, what they missed. Over at twitch.tv slash sourman70, that's S-O-U-R-M-A-N-7-0. And be sure to listen to us on your favorite podcast platform. If you want to give us a starred rating and a written review, we would appreciate that you would be one of our favorite new listeners. But that was our coverage, as I said, of Assassin's Creed. I'm your host, Jesse Reiners. And I'm your host, Alex Kendall. And thank you for tuning in to Finish the Fight, a gaming podcast. <laughs>